how to be less reactive by stimulating our prefrontal cortex. The three reasons why humans store the worst kind of fat. Why DNA doesn't determine our outcomes as much as we think. His three most important health habits and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 280 with Doctor of Internal Medicine and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm here because you want to become the best version of yourself, but there are so many things that you need to do in order to get there. And because it's overwhelmingly complicated, it's easy to lose focus, easy to lose a sense of direction, which is why so many people fall short of their true potential. But that's why I create videos, podcasts, and fitness programs to keep you on track to your best you. Go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. Today, I'm super excited to change the way that you look at your health through this episode with Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Austin and his father, Dr. David Perlmutter, are authors of Brainwash, which is one of my favorite health books that I've ever read. They talk about how our brain is being hijacked by so many things that are going on in our society, and this book empowers you with the knowledge and the tools to be able to fight back. Austin talks about how we can use food, exercise, nature, meditation, and so much more to our advantage to start flipping the script in our health. Make sure you go grab a copy of Brainwash at brainwashbook.com. Before diving into the episode, be sure to follow me on Instagram at carrier underscore best you and follow Dr. Perlmutter at Austin Perlmutter and let us know what you think of the episode. Without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Dr. Austin Perlmutter. All right, what's up everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm super fired up today to have the one and only Dr. Austin Perlmutter with me today. Uh, Austin, I just want to start off by saying thanks for spending the time with me here today. Yeah, Nick, pumped to be here too. Yeah, man, it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of fun. So, like I like I just told you, I just finished your and your father's book, Brainwashed, this morning. Um, some amazing information on here. And uh, to introduce you real quick, you're a board certified internal medicine physician, a New York Times bestselling author, educator, blogger, and podcaster. And you really focus on helping people become unstuck using brain based models of lifestyle change, which I'm all about. And as I just kind of told you, I'm a I'm a fitness trainer, but I really love coming from like a, a behavioral change standpoint rather than just like the x and o's of like of like reps and sets and, and all that kind of stuff i love the behavioral change kind of thing i'm a i have a fitness goal setting program that i take people through and so a lot of the things that i was learning in in your book is like oh my gosh i need to start applying this i need to start applying this and and my coaching and stuff so it was a lot of fun for me to go through um but the, basically kind of the over the overarching theme or the overarching premise for the book is about how our brains are being manipulated, resulting in behaviors that leave us lonely, anxious, depressed, distrustful, uh, illness prone, and overweight. And the way I kind of want to start today is you kind of talking about the three brains uh, of, okay, kind of just diving right in, kind of talking about the, the three brains and what the responsibility for each of them is, and then probably talk about like the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and uh the balance of the balance of those i'll kind of leave i'll kind of leave it there for sure well thanks for that kind of introduction to the book and you know i think before we jump into what's actually happening at a brain-based level i need people to understand this kind of core concept which is our brains are always changing Every moment of every day, they are being modified by what we take in. Now, that's good and it's bad. 
because it means that you are not the same person today that you were yesterday. It's how you have memories. You know things now that you didn't know yesterday. The reason for that is because your brain is different. The information is encoded differently. So that means if you want to change yourself, fantastic. All the machinery is in place. You can direct that change. You can change who you are at a molecular neural level. On the other hand, if you're not aware of this, you're going to basically be changed by your environment in a way that isn't advantageous. Because all of the information coming in, whether that's the media you consume, the food you consume, the relationships you keep, that's changing your brain. So if that's unhealthy information, you're going to wind up in a bad spot. So that's kind of step one. The next piece gets to what you just described, which is understanding these core kind of systems within the brain. And I want to be clear here, neuroscience has moved away from the idea that things in the brain are these discrete pockets where this does this and this does something else. It's all interconnected. So what we need to focus on is really ensuring that the brain is connected in a way that is advantageous to our decision-making, to our quality of life. In the book, we talk about this triune model of the brain or the three brains. And while I think it is a helpful model in understanding certain concepts within the brain, I think what's probably more important to grasp is that the brain kind of has areas that specialize in certain patterns of activity. And you brought up the idea of the amygdala. And I really think that the circuitry between the prefrontal cortex, which is in the front part of the brain, and is thought to be kind of one of the most recently evolved and relative to other animals, most evolved in humans, part of the brain, and the part of the brain called the limbic system. Limbic system is involved in things like motivation and memory and also reward and also our emotional processing. And a specific part of the limbic system is called the amygdala. You have one on each side of the brain. It's kind of almond-shaped and relatively small, but it's involved in our emotional processing. It's involved in things like anxiety and fear, and it's critically involved in the stress response. So your listeners have probably heard of things like the HPA axis or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the sympathetic nervous system. The amygdala kind of directs the activity of these two branches of the stress response. And coming back to this original piece about it's the connections that matter, research has shown that the connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala are really vital to our ability to downplay uh, these excessive stressors. So to put that in a different way, we tend to be very reactive to stressors. In some cases, that is helpful. If you are in imminent danger, you get the fight or flight response. That can be pragmatic, right? You try to run away. You try to fight off the predator. But in the modern day, we are faced with all of these chronic stressors, whether it's worried about money, worried about relationships, worried about not being in good enough shape. These things still trigger that fight or flight type response. And what we need is to have the prefrontal cortex come in and say, you know what, it's okay. We don't have to be so stressed. We'll come up with a plan. So we need the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And so a lot of what we talk about in the book is ways in which that connection has been severed by our interactions with the modern world and things we can do to both improve the connection as well as to improve the function of the prefrontal cortex. I know that was a whole lot of science and background, yeah. but what we can do is go into any part of that and get into more detail as far as what's actually pragmatic, useful information for the individual. 
Yeah, perfect. And so, no, I think that was, I think that was perfect intro, and and I I feel like I fully grasped it, and I feel like it was um, pretty simplified enough for for people to be able to grasp. But so to kind of think about it this way, let's say we're having a, a conversation with somebody, or we're watching the news, and and somebody says something, or we see something that makes us unhappy and, and causes us to have a high emotional response. Like a lot of times, the amygdala will want to take over right away and allow us or allow us forces, I don't know the right terminology, to react pretty quickly. But like if we've trained our brain enough, then we can let our prefrontal cortex help us in responding intelligently. Is that is that kind of what what's what going on? That's right. And I think important for people to understand that the human brain is not set up for us to be happy. Just period. It's not designed for us to be happy. It's designed to keep us alive. And so the threat response system in our brain is hypersensitive to things that could take us out of the game. Mm. If you think about where humans were a couple hundred thousand years ago, even less than that, you know, prior to, let's say, the farming being a thing or the uh, revolution in around 10,000 years ago, humans are out there wandering the plains there are a lot of threats. And unless we are highly attuned to those, there's a good chance we're going to get taken out by a neighboring tribe or eaten by a predator. So the brain is going to be very sensitive to the the risk of dying. Now, in the modern day, there isn't so much of an acute risk of dying, depending on where you are, right? It's not necessarily universal. But for most people in uh, most countries at this point, it's not that you're going to be taken out on a given day by something that is an imminent threat to your 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 survival, it's more that you're going to have to worry about the chronic threats to your survival. So chronic diseases, metabolic diseases, psychological threats that you get from, you know, worrying about work or worried about your finances. The thing is, the brain still treats all of that information the same. It still produces the same chemicals. It still engages the same threat response systems by way of the amygdala. The amygdala is sitting there saying, uh, you know, your boss said something mean to you. So that is a huge deal. I'm worried. I'm really worried. I'm going to produce the cortisol. Uh, I'm going to produce the epinephrine, the norepinephrine, the dopamine, all of these things that engage those primitive circuits. And you know, I want to be clear that a little bit of stress is actually not a bad thing. It helps us to get motivated. You need that in order to stay focused on something. It tells your brain, forget about everything else. Let's deal with the immediate threat. It's kind of the idea behind tunnel vision, right? If you have something acutely stressful, you're not going to be worried about what's going to happen in two, three weeks. You're not going to be worried about, you know, what movie are you going to watch tomorrow night? You're going to focus on how do I achieve some sort of a a rebalancing and deal with this threat. But chronically, when those hormones like cortisol are elevated over time, it's actually been shown in animal models that it causes a shrinkage in the prefrontal cortex. The neurons in the prefrontal cortex atrophy versus the neurons in the amygdala, which love it. They say, hey, I'm being called on. It's a stress time, so I'm just going to do my thing. Those neurons branch out. They make more connections. So the balance of the brain changes to kind of perpetuate the same stressful circuits. So I think of this as kind of a cycle of stuckness, because when you consider the things that are getting us stuck, one of those 
is kind of anxious stress type behaviors. And the more you condition your brain for that, the more the brain will be set up to continue it. So it's this vicious cycle that perpetuates itself. Now, I know we're going to get to the interventions, but I want people to appreciate that it's great to understand this because then you can think about what type of programming are you giving your brain on a given day, right? So if you're watching the news, is that activating your stress center, changing your neurochemistry, changing your neural circuits so that you're more reactive person, less able to engage the prefrontal cortex versus doing something like meditation, mindfulness, which has been shown in research to help activate the prefrontal cortex and help connect it back with the amygdala. Yeah, no, that, that, that was awesome. I think no understanding that the the cycle is there and how the more and more like the amygdala is activated. And like you said, you literally branch and grow more neurons there and, and the other ones atrophy is huge. And I didn't think I was going to get into this part of it right, right away, but I think I'm going to, because it, it's a very similar, I feel like secular model that you guys talked about how when people are overweight and have more abdominal fat, then they have like more inflammation and therefore can't, make uh, as sound of decisions necessarily when it comes to like eating things and then therefore they're going to have more fat, more inflammation, worse decision making. And that's a kind of um, obviously a vicious cycle as well. And another interesting study that y'all posted in there, posted in your book was talking about how when somebody who was overweight versus somebody who was less overweight sees like a picture or a commercial of like unhealthy food, the overweight person's reward pathways are more triggered than somebody who is maybe less overweight. And so kind of, I want you to maybe give a little bit more of the detail behind the the things that I just talked about. And then we can talk about some of the things that we can do food wise in order to start um, overcoming that. Yeah. Well, you know, Nick, I think what you're getting to here is something that I've been feeling very strongly about. And that is, whether it's depression, um, being overweight, having high blood pressure, whatever it might be, you know, there's a tendency to blame people for those things. And I think that's so unhelpful. Um, you know, as it relates to good choices and bad choices, those are subjective terms. And it's not for me to tell somebody what they need to do differently. If they want to do something differently, that's a different kind of whole paradigm. And where I want to help people is when they find themselves setting goals for the person they want to become, whether that's weight loss or just getting to the gym or having better relationships with other people or saving more money, whatever that is, if they have a long-term goal, but their present actions are not in alignment, now all of a sudden you have this gap between how you're behaving now and how you want to be in the future. And that's where we can make a lot of progress. Very different from me telling somebody, you need to change your diet. And they say, no, I don't want to change my diet. That's this kind of paternalistic, I'm telling you what to do and hoping for the best. So to your point, as far as, you know, what's happening in the body when you have higher BMI and stuff, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to blame anyone or castigate somebody for their weight. What I am saying though, is as you're looking at the quality of your decision-making, the ability to bridge what you're doing in the moment with what's going to happen tomorrow, your outcomes tomorrow, There are a lot of variables that we can look at. One of those is inflammation. And inflammation is kind of a vague term. What I'm really referring to here is levels of certain chemicals in the bloodstream that we call inflammation, and specifically chronic inflammation, 
like stress, a little bit of acute inflammation isn't necessarily the end of the world. It's when it's stable for long periods of time in a kind of low level, smoldering level. That's the stuff that incapacitates our brain. That's the stuff that over time is associated with heart disease, with diabetes, with Alzheimer's disease, and with worse thinking. So what do we know about BMI? Um, it's kind of a, a crude marker of what might be happening inside of the body. And what we've learned is that in when you're thinking about fat, um, not all fat is created equal. So there are kind of these two major classes of fat. There's brown fat, which we don't have a lot of as we get older, but it's actually positive for our metabolism. It actually can burn up extra fuel. It produces energy specifically by, uh, actually burns energy, produces heat. So good for us. And then you have white fat. Most people, myself included, I'm sure, have a whole lot more white fat than, I, than we do brown fat. And then within white fat, there are kind of a couple of types. There's beige fat, which is the white fat that's kind of on the spectrum towards brown fat. And then there's subcutaneous white fat, which is the stuff that if you pinch your belly, that would be subcutaneous fat. And then there's visceral fat. And visceral fat is probably the most concerning of all of these. Visceral fat is the deep fat. It's the stuff that's below the surface. It's around the organs. And that's the stuff that seems to really promote inflammation. Mm -hmm. So what I would like people to do is if they're mm -hmm. looking at their decisions and they're saying, I'm not happy with the way I'm making choices, to say, what are the variables that are going into this? And one of those variables may be your fat stores, specifically these visceral fat stores that produce inflammation. So you can see correlations between decision-making, BMI, but really I think it has more to do with the inflammation that is produced by fat cells. Because when they do the subgroup analysis or the sub-analysis, they show that yes, higher weight predicts more impulsive decision-making, but that probably has more to do with the inflammatory markers, things like C-reactive protein and interleukin-6, which are these uh, inflammatory markers in the bloodstream that correlate with worse decision-making. So to kind of put all of this together here, I think the key is for people to have a sense as to, are they happy with the quality of their decisions? Do the things they do right now represent the person they want to become? If the answer to all of that is yes, then it's very hard to have somebody like me come in and say, you need to do these things differently. People just won't care. You have to find an objective that you're both aligned on. Once you do that, you work backwards and you look at variables that might help to improve decision-making. One of those may be to lose this visceral fat, which is high in inflammation and may compromise our decision-making. Gotcha. So to, to kind of dive into maybe the causations of what makes people have high levels of white fat or the subcutaneous and the visceral fat and what they can do to prevent or decrease those levels. Let's get into just some, some practical things real quick in regards to what causes it and how to maybe re prevent or reduce. Yeah. So when you're talking about how does adiposity develop in general, right? How do we create fat stores? Um, I, I think it is helpful to have a little bit of that kind of evolutionary context as far as what is the purpose of fat. And fat is really just a storage depot for energy. That's the point. You have 
kind of your short-term energy reserves, which is, you can think of like the money in your wallet, and that's your glucose and glycogen, right? So it's stuff that can be rapidly broken down and used. The stuff that if you go to the grocery store, you can peel out some money, pay for it, move on. And then you have your bank account, you know, almost like a safety deposit box. It's kind of hard to get access to it, but you can put a lot more information, a lot more energy uh, in the form of fat into that, that box. So when you think about you know, how the body processes energy, it always wants to have some short-term cash on hand. That's your glucose, that's your glycogen. But it also is planning for the possibility that you run out of that energy. And in days gone by, you know, that's thinking about more the wintertime when there isn't such an abundance of food available. So there are kind of, you know, differing hypotheses on how that fat gets, how the body decides to store the fat. The one that that I'm kind of the biggest proponent of um, has more to do with overabundance of refined carbohydrates. Uh, and, you know, there's kind of some technical reasons why I think that is the case has to do with the way that the liver processes things like fructose uh, and other carbohydrates and then converts that into triglycerides and other fat, which then gets packaged into these fat cells. But the bottom line is, you know, the reason our body develops fat at all is to save energy for the future. So I think it's a combination of over uh, abundance of calories, uh, low quality calories relative to the nutrient value that comes with them, and especially the high levels of refined carbohydrates that um, all kind of contribute to what we're seeing today, which is, you know, most people in America are overweight or obese based on BMI criteria. So that's that's the general take on it. As far as you know, what predisposes us to the visceral fat, it's kind of the same type of conversation. As far as uh, you know, what's going on with specific dietary patterns and also things like inflammation itself, which may contribute to it. But the bottom line is, most people have some degree of overweight obesity. Uh, in the United States, at least. And, you know, a lot of people are trying to work on that. Unfortunately, the way that most kind of dietary uh, protocols are set up is such that they will lose some fat initially, and then they'll gain it back. And the reason for that is the body's very smart. If you start cutting out calories, starving yourself, right? Let's say you're going to do 1500 calories a day or kilocalories a day, the body will slow down its metabolic rate. And so you'll lose some weight initially, and then it'll adjust. And now all of a sudden it'll stabilize. And in most cases, you'll gain that weight back. So the things that, um, based on what I've seen, make the most sense is to change a diet such that you're, you're affecting your hormones, your immune system, your neurochemistry, uh, and really just to start eating a diet that is high in real foods. Most people consume a lot of highly processed foods that kind of tricks the body into continuing to eat, doesn't give us the satiety signals, um, and also leads to this extra fat deposition. So, you know, we can go into this in more detail if you want, but it is really this combination of exercise and nutrition that is going to lead to removal of this visceral fat. Uh, and there's a lot of nuance in that. And certainly I know people like you have a lot of expertise in this as well, but 
for most people, I think we're getting distracted by this wording as far as the quick fix solution, right? It's yeah. you take this new pill, you do this new diet. What we need is to establish the habits that enable us to adopt a lifestyle consistent with the type of foods, the type of exercise, the type of stress reduction that will promote a stable body over the decades. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that was, that was all great. I couldn't agree more. I mean, in regards to like, obviously refined carbohydrates are probably like one of the number one killer in the world. Um, and as you said, and one of the things that I try to stress to people in regards to simplifying nutrition is like eat real foods. Most of the things that you should be eating shouldn't have like an ingredient list, like a Brussels sprout's a Brussels sprout, uh, a blueberry's a blueberry, like and if you have something packaged, make sure you guys like say in your book, maybe sure it's five ingredients or less and make sure it's like stuff that you know how to pronounce and you know what it is. And, and to me, it's, it's so simplified and I feel like most people know kind of that they should be doing that, but they still, for whatever reason, aren't doing it. And so Kind of on that note, what do you feel like is maybe one of the top reasons why people like kind of know what they should be doing, but they're still not doing it? You're, you're so right in that we have the basics. We know we need a little exercise. We need to eat some, you know, real foods. Um, and yet we don't do it. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one is coming back to the way our brains are structured we like the sooner, smaller reward over the larger, later reward. And so if you can give a person, you know, something that tells them, hey, listen, you know, you can watch your TV, you can sit on the couch for hours each day, and then you can take this pill that's going to lead to weight loss. That is a preference over telling somebody you need to exercise for an hour, a couple of days a week. You need to consistently eat healthy food instead of the really rewarding, sugary, salty, fatty foods that are so prevalent today. So the brain has a natural preference for what is easier and what is you know more rewarding in the moment than the long-term satisfaction. So that's one. Um, but to your question, as far as how do you bridge, you know, basically knowing what you're supposed to be doing, but actually not doing that thing. Um, I'm, I'm developing a process uh, that I've been talking about to help people in that pro in kind of that journey. And I think it, it really gets back to some of the things that we discussed earlier, which is if you're working with a person, or even if you're just doing this in your own head, I think having an idea of your actual goals. Um, and there's, you know, I'm sure you actually have a lot of expertise in this, but it's not enough to just say, I want to be, quote, healthier. You need to have that tethered to something. Why do you want to be healthier? What does healthier mean to you? You know, how how is this going to be realized? And then once you get there, you can start working backwards. And what I like to do is I have people call out the decisions that they've made that are out of sync with those long-term goals. So let's say a person's goal is they want to, you know, lose 30 pounds, right? You could argue whether or not that is a good goal, but that's their overall goal. And you say, well, what are the things necessary to get that person there? Dietary, exercise, stress reduction. Um, and then you say, what are the decisions that are most compromising your reaching those goals? And you, you kind of go through and you say, well, in the course of a day, what are the decisions that are either in sync with that or out of sync with it? And it may be something like, you know, I do find myself 
eating blank at this hour of the day. Maybe it's you get home from work, you're uh, finding yourself opening a bag of potato chips or whatever it might be. And you can isolate that as a decision that is out of sync with your long-term goals. And you can do this for most people. They can find several instances of this, you know, where they're saying, this is something I do that doesn't make sense given where I want to get. Where I think people lose track is when they find those instances and they say, these are the things that I need to stop doing. And if they can identify, they say, well, I'll just stop eating potato chips after I get home from work. But where I focus my efforts is not so much on the moment of decision itself. It's on the upstream things that influence that decision. So if it's the bag of potato chips you eat every day when you get home from work, you say, what is happening that is causing me to eat that bag of potato chips? And there are multiple steps you can go through. One is just asking about the habit loops that are around that action. So you might think that you do things we do most of our things in the course of a day consciously, but research shows that upward of 40% of the time, it's habitual, which means we do things based on their context. So it may be for you that you sit on the couch and that triggers your brain to reach for that bag of potato chips. It's not that you desperately want it. It's not that you really need it. It's because there's a habit loop. So that's something you can work on changing. But then I ask, what are the other variables that went into it? We know, for example, that sleep deficit is correlated with an increased consumption of almost 400 extra calories in the day after. And those tend to be high in calorie or high in uh, energy, I should say, um, and kind of low in nutrition. So that means that if that person finds themselves eating that unhealthy snack every day, you can ask them, what is your sleep like the day before that? Maybe that's where you go to make the intervention. Similarly, you can look at things like stress. You know, What was your stress level coming home from work? Because that might've influenced your decision. When was the last time you exercised? We know that exercise increases executive functions. Executive functions get back to the idea of the prefrontal cortex, which is that executive functions are reflective thinking. So weighing the pros and cons, it gets you out of the unconscious kind of habitual type decision. So that was a lot, but what I want people to understand is by the time you make a decision, you've already lost most of your chances at making it a better choice, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're just constantly hoping that you're going to have more willpower, more motivation, you're going to fail. It's what happens in New Year's resolutions. It's why they fail. People didn't change the environment. People didn't change their brain. And if you want to be successful, that's where you need to spend your time. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And you you brought a, um, brought a lot of things up that I work on and, and some of my coaching things because I like what you really said there towards the end. It's not just a matter of having the discipline and having the willpower because I think that the likelihood of following through with things that you kind of know you should be doing is not as much based off of discipline and willpower that people think. It's more about their, I call like a system of success. And like your system of success has to do with setting yourself up for success. So if you know that you have a bag of potato chips because you, you're sitting on the couch watching TV, then you need to make the commitment to yourself that you're not you're going to go read a book instead. Or if you know that on the way home you stop at fast food, then go take another route on the way home. Like Don't rely on your discipline to drive by and, and not make the decision. Just like make the con your, your uh, context or make the contextual situation completely different. So I think that's, I just think that's super key. And I think it's something that don't, people don't think about enough because I think that is, they think it is just a matter of discipline and willpower. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the conventional story. That's the one we all hear. You go on YouTube, you see so many videos that are just telling you, try harder, you know, grind it out. And the truth is for a lot of the stuff that matters, whether it's being financially successful, having a successful relationship or being a healthy person, it's the compounding interest you get from consistent, decent decisions. It's not all about forcing yourself to make a couple of really great choices. You have to condition your brain for better choices. Your best bet at being successful is to plan to make things easier for tomorrow's brain. That's where we should be spending our time, not blaming ourselves for the decisions we made today or yesterday. Certainly, look at your past. If you look at your past, you can see the things that influenced you, the way that you made choices, but not through the lens of blame, through the lens of curiosity. What went wrong? What went wrong? What went right? And once you start getting that insight, you're then crafting your future brain for success. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just couldn't agree anymore. We could talk more and more about this all day. Um, I'm, I, I want to go back to, you know, I, I'm actually going to go here. So kind of what you talked about in the beginning about in regards to how your brain is constantly changing and this idea of neuroplasticity and also kind of the idea of epigenetics, meaning that a lot of people think that they're predisposed to certain illnesses, predisposed to certain things because of their family genetics, which obviously has a, a certain role, but there's also um, this role of epigenetics based off of your behavior, essentially. And one of the things that I've heard before, and one of the things that I like to say is that a lot of times it's not family DNA that's passed down, it's family habits that gives you the same result as the pe as your people that you're descending from. So talk a little bit about how your brain does have the like a little bit deeper into the science to give people like more belief that this is actually real that behind like how your brain can ch your changes every single day and how you're not subject to whatever your parents or grandparents and, and stuff like that ha have had in the past. We're going to take a brief pause in the interview really quickly because if you're somebody who is looking to achieve a fitness goal or maybe you lack motivation to get into the gym, you lack some structure in your in your weekly routine, or maybe you've been wanting to get back into the fitness game and get back to maybe your weight loss goal or whatever goal it is, and you're not really quite sure how. If that sounds like you, my 10-week program is for you because I help everybody set a very specific goal. Then we create a very specific strategy of the two or the three things that we need to do every single week that we believe are going to make us successful with our overall goal and that'll help you execute and I'll help you hold you accountable every single week so you do the things that you kind of know you should be doing but you're you're not quite doing them right now and that's what I've done with hundreds of people over the past 365 days over the past a little over a year and I want you to make sure that you are part of it as well and enough for me I want you to hear from the people who have done it in the past what they've got out of it and, and why they did it in the first place so here you go I cannot say enough good things about Nick's 10-week program. I have always been somebody who has worked out but never really had a fitness goal. If anything I really wanted to achieve, it was more so just to stay in shape. And Nick does a great job of helping you not only define the goal, but also realize what steps you need to take to get there. Tomorrow, as of my weigh-in week nine, I hit my goal of losing 25 pounds in 10 weeks. Just the whole methodology of the program, with it being one big goal, followed by some smaller goals to help me reach that big goal and then the weekly commitments to help me reach those smaller goals. During these times, it's helped strengthen my mental health and strengthen my focus and really made sure to hold me accountable to my goals. 
I'm so happy that I was able to hit the goal and uh, so much so that I decided to do another 10 weeks with Nick. I would recommend it to anybody, no matter what your goals are, if it's weight loss, if it's running a shorter mile, if it's anything you would like to achieve, I think that this program gives you the tools to set yourself up for success. But one of the biggest benefits for me, and the biggest takeaway I had was one I wasn't necessarily set out to improve upon, and that was building more self-confidence and really instilling self-accountability. The program was great. Um, I'm doing it again a second time to continue my weight loss, and I just can't recommend it enough. So again, guys, if you lack motivation, if you lack structure, if you want to get back into your fitness game, but you're not really sure how, then I want you to make sure you go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs to learn more. For now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I think this is a, a super empowering concept. Um, it can really take you deep into philosophy as well, and even spirituality, if that's you know where you want to go with it. But there's nothing about us that is stable. You know, we, we come up with this idea of a self or identity as though that is something that perseveres. And it's nice, but I think more powerful to understand that we're part of this giant flux, right? This giant universal ecosystem where we're always changing. You turn over millions of cells every few seconds. And <laughs> what researchers have shown is that in the brain, the wiring, um, changes constantly as well. And so neuroplasticity is both functional and structural, meaning functionally the way that the neurons work changes and structurally the way that the neurons are connected changes. And you add in this additional concept of neurogenesis, which is the idea that we create new neurons throughout our lifespans in a couple of really important parts of the brain. And you realize that, you know, there's this kind of this river uh, that we're in as far as, you know, we could call ourselves the river if you want to have that stable sense of self, but the molecules, the cells within us are the water rushing through. So we can always be changing who we are with our decisions. When you talk about genetics, you know, certainly there are conditions in which a genetic predisposition or a, a genetic code that's passed down from your parents will lead to a specific uh, outcome, a specific medical condition. And in several of these cases, we don't have necessarily a way out in that we don't have necessarily a treatment for it. However, in the majority of cases, what genes do is they kind of set us on a course and it's up to us to change that course. One of the nice metaphors that I've heard about this is when it comes to most of our diseases, if a, a gene plays a role, it may load the gun, but it is on us to pull the trigger. And so that gets to the subject of epigenetics. And that's basically the idea that it isn't so much the genes that we have, but the way that they are converted into information that matters. Epigenetics, meaning on top of genes, is the study of how things like methyl groups, but basically these modifications of the genes tell them which ones to be active and which ones should be silent. So what's super cool about this is we know that our lifestyle changes, whether that's the food we eat or the exercise we get or the sleep we get, changes the epigenetics in our bodies. So when we give our body certain foods or when we give our body the right amount of rest or when we do the right types of exercises, that is changing the way that our genes are converted into information. 
So with all of that kind of together, I think it is such an empowering message to people that, yeah, your parents might have been unhealthy. You know, you might have a predisposition to uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, but that's just the starting point. That's one story that can be written. And it's up to us to say, you know, is that the story that I want? And what can I do to change the narrative? And every day we have a chance to do that with our choices around foods, as I said, exercise, sleep, but also mindfulness, nature exposure, our relationships. These are variables that speak to our DNA and change the way that that is converted in for, into information and thereby changes who we are literally at a molecular level up to proteins, our organs, and getting back to where we started, the whole concept of self, our identity is changed with the decisions we make. Yeah, man, I, I don't think I could have said it any better in regards to it being such an empowering idea, which is why I wanted to bring it up because I think so many people do think that if my parents had this thing, then... Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. But it's like, no, like you, you actually can play a huge role into that. Um, I think one thing I want, to, want you to touch on briefly, because I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize and it, it can, the realization of it can allow you to create behavior change. And that's this idea that these unhealthy foods are, yes, high in calories, but low in nutrients. So they don't give us the satiety or the satiety um, that actually like good foods do. So I want you to just kind of riff on why that is for a quick minute because again i just think the i think a lot of people don't understand that and don't know that but if they did they're like oh that's why like i i don't want to eat this unhealthy food because it's just going to make me want to eat more and more and more and more right this this speaks to the idea of you know a calorie of blank is not the same as a calorie of something else a calorie of broccoli is not the same as a calorie from popcorn right or yeah. from a candy bar because it's not just about the calories uh, it's the way our body processes the calories. So for example, if you read something that says uh, it has 300 calories of serving, doesn't mean that your body is going to absorb all of those calories. Some of those calories may actually be used up in the processing. So for example, protein is thought to have a thermogenic effect in that it increases uh, heat production and therefore doesn't actually provide the same equivalent of calories as what you might think of something like fat or uh, of carbohydrate. So that's the first thing to know. A calorie is not a calorie as far as what's relevant within your body. But then there are all these other molecules that come alongside of our foods. And so you have your macronutrients, your fats, your carbs, your proteins, and then you have your micronutrients, things like vitamins and minerals. And then you have your phytonutrients, which are plant-based molecules, things like resveratrol and EGCG that also influence our bodies. And it's the quality of each of these three things that is so important in the effect that a, a food will have on our bodies. So, you know, for example, if you eat, uh, you could say you're just eating something that's high in fat, but is that fat rich in omega-3 fats or is it rich in trans fats? We know those, those have very different effects on things like inflammation, which I already mentioned can change our thinking. So why this is concerning as it relates to the foods that people are eating today is that if you look at what is added to foods and what is taken away from foods, it's exactly the opposite of what we would want for health. Most foods in the American food system, based on a study of over a million foods, contain added sugar to the tune of around 70%. So added sweeteners, both uh, natural sugars and artificial sweeteners. Why is that concerning? 
we know that these things influence our gut microbiome. And there's a lot of recent research suggesting that it's the artificial sweeteners that might influence our microbiome for the worse. Microbiome being the collection of all the bugs that live in our gut. We know that the microbes that live in our gut have this intimate connection with the brain that influences the way that we think. And the way that that works is through these metabolites or these products that are produced by the microbes, things called short chain fatty acids and other things that by way of the bloodstream and by way of the vagus nerve influence the way that we think, influence our brain function. So now you have all these foods with artificial sweeteners that are messing with our microbiome that are changing the messages that go to our brain. So that's concerning. But then you think about what is happening kind of immediately as a result of the high levels of you know, natural sugars. Our brains love that. Um, you know, and I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that coming back to the idea of our evolutionary history, our brains love sugar because sugar tells us that this is a bunch of readily available calories and our bodies are able to store that in fat. So the sugar, you know, there's there's some research suggesting that sugary foods hyperactivate aspects of the reward system and that sugary foods may in and of themselves have addictive tendencies. What I think is probably more concerning is that through some of the mechanisms I talked about before, when you're eating all of these sugary foods, you're building up the visceral fat and the other fatty stores, you're increasing inflammation, you're leading to insulin resistance, you're leading to circulating high levels of glucose. And all of those things are kind of toxic to our cognition. They're toxic to our brain function. We know that insulin resistance is correlated with Alzheimer's dementia, but we're also understanding that insulin resistance is correlated with just mild cognitive impairment and actually just worse cognition as a whole. So, you know, there are several mechanisms for this. I think one of the, the big problems is that we have kind of correlated through an association-based learning system, all of our happy events with terrible foods, Halloween, yeah. Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, Christmas, you've got to have the cookies, you've got to have the candies. And when you do that, you create these loops in the brain where you start craving those unhealthy foods and associate them with these positive memories. So that is the way that our brains learn. It's associative learning. So now you have basically all of these seemingly positive events that are correlated with the types of foods that are damaging to our brain function. So Again, there's, there's a lot to talk about as far as what might be yeah. happening with the actual reward circuits in the brain. I think it's still a little bit early to say that eating a whole bunch of sugary foods acutely messes with your reward circuitry. But what makes a lot of sense is you say, what are the dietary patterns associated with depression, with poor cognition, with dementia, with bad decision-making? And that's where I really get concerned about these high glycemic added sugar type foods. Yeah. Oh, that's all that stuff is great, and I, I, I'm like, I could get fired up and, and, and talk more and more about it, but I want to make sure I um, get things wrapped up here on time. Um, one of the things I feel like we've gone, we've gotten, I freaking love what we've gotten into, but I feel like we've gotten away from some of those intervention things in regards to the amygdala and the, and the prefrontal cortex, and that's essentially, I feel like, the what the book is kind of about in terms of. Uh, trying to get the prefrontal cortex more involved and stuff like that. And in the end of the book, you guys have what you guys call a 10-day brainwash. And so I don't want you to dive super deep in all of them, but just like in a, in a couple minutes, like you guys kind of do at the end of the book, I want you to 
run through maybe the, you know the the eight days because the last couple of days are kind of recaps, but the eight days of the ten day brainwash because it's all about the, the prefrontal cortex and getting that more stimulated, I guess. Right. So I think this is really important. It's that we can have this general conversation about everything happening in our brains and our bodies and society, but what can you do today to start yeah. improving the quality of your decisions? And when we talk about mechanisms, the one that we're talking about in brainwash is how do you activate, bring online the prefrontal cortex? How do you calm down the amygdala and bring online the prefrontal cortex so that you can make better decisions, so you can calm down the anxious circuits in your brain? And you mentioned we have this 10-day plan. What I'd like to tell people, though, is start with a couple of things that are interesting uh, to you, that are easy for you. We know from habit research, it's takes you know upward of two months to form a new habit. And so what we did with the 10-day plan was just try to give people exposure to these things so they could see in the short run what it is that was appealing to them and start to feel some of those benefits so they could figure out which of those things that they wanted to incorporate. The ones that I really recommend people start with are sleep and nature exposure. And let me explain why. When we talk about sleep, we know that kind of similar to inflammation, that sleep deficit, poor sleep is implicated in heart disease, coronary artery disease, in dementia, in insulin resistance, all of these conditions that are, are really concerning today. But what's really interesting is that sleep deficit seems to sever the connection between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. It seems to suppress the activity of the prefrontal cortex. The best example I can give you of this is think about how your attention is after you've lost a night of sleep or even just had bad sleep. You know, think about how easy it is to drive a car and stay focused when you've been sleep deprived, how easy it is to do work when you didn't get good sleep the night before. Our prefrontal cortex goes offline when we don't get good sleep. So I would recommend to people the easiest thing that many people can do to improve the quality of their thinking by way probably of this prefrontal activation and connection with the amygdala is to give yourself that seven to eight hour window of good sleep. And we go into a lot of tips in the book as to how to make that happen. But I think trying to avoid blue light exposure before bed is really key. Um, I think not having your phone in your bedroom is really key. And I think that having uh, cooler temperatures in the bedroom is really a great way to start. But really it all comes down to having a sleep routine. You need to treat this very seriously, a lot of the time we push sleep as a secondary thing. We say, oh, well, I wanted to answer one more email. I want to watch one more episode of the show. You got to make sleep a core part of your routine. So that's one. Try to focus on sleep. The other one, nature exposure. And people have actually had a lot more nature exposure than they've had today. Uh, some of the research we cite in the book is that they did a survey of Americans and over 90% of their day was spent indoors. Right, whether that's inside of a house or inside of a car, we have become an indoor species. It just that's the situation. Now, why that's a problem is because nature exposure, the absence of kind of indoors, is associated with a bunch of positive benefits. Positive benefits, a little redundant, but benefits. You get benefits to reducing stress. You get benefits to re, uh, improving immune function, and you get benefits, perhaps most importantly, to your thinking. There's a whole area of research called attention restoration theory. And the idea here is that being exposed to nature improves the function of the prefrontal cortex. So for all of those reasons, and because it's free for so many people, 
they can get some nature for no money whatsoever. Um, I think this is something people need to be incorporating into their routine. So whether that's just getting out, walking around, even in an urban natural setting, if you can go out somewhere, there's some more nature. And if you can't do any of those things, even having some indoor plants, these are all ways to help reset your brain for better decisions. In addition to getting kind of the anti-stress, anti-inflammatory um, benefits that have been associated with nature exposure. So those are kind of the two things I think are kind of fun and that people can get started on um, and that will see the biggest bang for their buck. The other things that we talk about in there um, is a digital media detox. Uh, we didn't really get into that, but I think it's something that will increasingly be important for people, especially right now during the pandemic. We're spending so much time on our phones and our screens. American adults are spending 11 hours a day looking at screens. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but we walk people through, you know, some basic steps to help them to both recognize how sucked in we are to these devices and to set some boundaries around that. Um, and then, you know, the other things are are relatively uh, basic as far as the ideas behind them, meaning exercise and diet and mindfulness and meditation, um, as well as improving relationships with other people. But it's really the sum total of these things that has been associated with good physical and mental health for millennia. You know, we yeah. didn't invent nature exposure. We certainly didn't invent exercise. The point though is putting these into a context such that you're able to benefit from it and do it consistently. So I really recommend to people, you think about some of the stuff we talked about earlier in this episode, as far as what are the, the things you're doing that are out of sync with your long-term goals. And then you work backwards from those and use some of these things we just described. So you want to make better decisions, look at how you have habits around the bad decisions. Look at your sleep, look at your nature exposure. Think about exercising immediately prior to the moments where you would have made a bad decision. Studies have shown that in the period right after you exercise, you have better prefrontal cortex function, probably because you get more blood flow to it. So there are a lot of things to work on. But I think for most people, just pick one or two, start on that and start building your brain into one that can tolerate more of these healthy habits. Yeah. And, and I really love that exercise. I meant to say that before in, in regards to looking at your current habits and how they relate or are helping you slash not serving you in regards to getting to your goals. I think that's a really important self-awareness habit. And then I'm, I'm glad you touched on the two that we didn't really have much time to talk about today in regards to sleep because and the thing I was thinking about is um, people know how much more of like a shorter temper too that they have when after a bad night's sleep or or something like that yeah and then the and then I'm glad you talked about the the nature thing as well because I'm like I know that in my room if I've spent a whole day in my room and my blinds are closed I'll like be going crazy and then I, it's funny just like the simple of like opening the blinds I'm like all right I'm good <laughs> just having a little bit of light and it, it, it can be a lot simpler like obviously ideal is actually get out in nature but as simple as like having some sunlight having a plant in your room like those things have also shown to to be beneficial so i'm glad that you got into that so last couple questions here i, I want you to dive in on on a personal level what are like maybe two of your most important habits that you try to do on a daily basis in regards to and it might have been things we, we just we just talked about but in regards to making sure that you're activating and stimulating your prefrontal cortex and avoiding and uh, dimmering down the amygdala. Right. So 
you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in that um, I have a wonderful girlfriend and she's very much on the same page. So we are able to prioritize a lot of these things. And we joke sometimes because we feel like our lives are becoming more like, um, you know, the prototypically elderly as far as eating dinner earlier, getting in bed earlier, waking up earlier, all those things. But um, it, it's kind of a, a sum total of those things that's been beneficial. And it's sequentially adding stuff in as we either learn more information as to what is healthy or as we identify things that we think are kind of throwing us off. So Right now, we're trying to get into the habit of doing a circuit in the morning before we do our, our work for the day. And I have to say, that has not been my standard exercise routine. And I'm I'm not always thrilled to do it. But, um, you know, it's having somebody there to motivate you to say, we're doing this together until it becomes a habit. Um, but the things that I think have been, you know, most helpful for me in the last year or so is one, having that sleep schedule. Um, I used to go to sleep 10, 30, 11 you know, it'd be one more episode of the office or check a couple more emails. And I had my cell phone in the room and that was my alarm. So first thing I do in the morning, I'd wake up, oh, I could check my emails. Oh, I could check Instagram, whatever. And so now it's trying to wind down in the evening um, and trying to uh, basically keep my phone out of the room. And then when I wake up in the morning, my routine now is 20 minutes of meditation before I get any screen time or anything like that and trying to restrict my social media uh, for about two hours after I wake up. So then I'll, I'll give myself a window to do that. Um, and so that's been, yeah, that's been really helpful for me. Uh, there are a lot of other little things, but I think that really working on my habits around um, sleep and then in the immediate period for the first hour or so after I wake up has had the biggest bang for my buck. Yeah. Awesome. Those are great, great things. Well, before I ask the last question, I want to acknowledge you for you and you and your dad's work, like, and, and everything, like you obviously have such a solid understanding of all this stuff and you guys have done so much work and, and so much research and, and so much discovery around these things. And it's, it's just so, so vital because as you said, you didn't, you guys didn't invent a lot of these things, but the more that it can be conveyed in, in different ways to try to get it across to people, um, the better it's going to be and the more effect it's going to have. And and I think that the way that you guys go about it is super cool and unique. And I think it's really going to influence a lot of people's decision-making. I appreciate that. Really do. Of course. Of course. Well, I want to make sure everybody goes and, and supports you guys as much as possible. Like I've already, we've already talked a ton about the book. So make sure you guys go get Brainwash um, written by Austin and his dad and make sure you go uh, check out Austin's website, austinperlmutter.com. Make sure you go follow him on Instagram as well. Is there any other um, good place that people should go follow you and learn more? I think that's probably sufficient. You know, I have okay. a Twitter and a clubhouse account, but honestly, it's hard to keep up with all the social platforms. So find me on Instagram and we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, cool. Cool. We'll have all that stuff linked up in the show notes. Well, uh, well, Austin, last question is I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is both a constant journey and a unique journey. I think that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So again, for you personally, if there are three things that you can currently do or three things that you can currently work on to get closer to that best version of Austin Perlmutter that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Yeah. Uh, so one is relationships. That's one that I've really been thinking about uh, a lot. And as far as how do you sustain healthy relationships, how many relationships do I have? Um, and how do I make sure that 
those are always being built in a positive way as opposed to being put in put on autopilot. So the one that, yeah, definitely trying to double up on the quality of my relationships and maybe potentially lower the quantity a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. Number two is to have a better understanding of how do I integrate my past with my future. And, you know, I'm not talking necessarily about the decision-making piece here so much, but in trying to understand my early life influences um, and how they inform the way that I see the world now. Uh, So that's two. And then the third one is trying to have a better plan for how I question. Uh, It's something I've been working on a lot. And, you know, I I recently did an Instagram live where I was talking about a book I just read uh, by Carl Hart, uh, Drug Use for Grownups. And I... I learned in my medical training and from my relatively conservative town growing up that drugs were bad, just period, right? If you touch marijuana, you're going to, your head's going to explode and you go near cocaine, your foot's going to fall off. But uh, in the last few years, understanding how research around things like psilocybin and MDMA may actually be quite advantageous in certain populations, um, opened the door for me to reflect on some of those uh, previously held assumptions. And, you know, not that I agree necessarily with Dr. Hart's um, recent book. He's, he will actively endorse using heroin and says it's really not such a big deal. Um, it's just a good representation for me of the fact that I have to expect that I'm wrong about most things and that I tend to still, despite knowing that, um, maybe be too confident or, uh, too rigid in my changing. So I'm trying to find the balance um, between being confident enough to participate in the discussion, but also open enough to make sure I'm not missing out on important information. And so that's, that has been a journey and I know it will continue to be. Yeah. Well, damn, dude, those are a good last couple of things. I really like that last one. I mean, we always can uh, fall victim to confirmation bias and, and seeking things that that we already know we kind of agree with and, and sticking with that. But I think that, that one's awesome. Have a better plan for how I question things. Well, uh, Austin, that's all we got. Great uh, last three things. Had an awesome conversation, and I know people are going to get a lot of value from it. I hope people will go back and take notes if they didn't take notes during it because there's a lot of great science and, and stuff in here, but there's also great actionable actionable things that – Austin talks about today that you can go start to implement and you can start to implement the uh, 10-day brainwash in the book as well. But that's all we got today. Appreciate it, man. Okay, so I know that was a lot of info, but I want you to realize how simple all of it really was. Sure, he got into a lot of science as to how our brain can be set up for success, but it's as simple as get some quiet meditative time, get out in nature, eat real foods, exercise, and get proper sleep all of those things that we can we can literally start taking action on tomorrow if we want to be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member share it with someone who is looking to take their health to the next level or send it to someone who is having some health issues themselves and let them know that they have the ability to change it starting tomorrow by taking different action and making different decisions also go grab a copy of brainwash today at brainwashbook.com and look if you're interested in having a clear path to hit your fitness goal, then go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Remember, 40% of your of your daily decisions are habitual. They're based on your habits. So if you have bad habits, then you already start your day with an F on a, on a grading scale. Try to be aware of the habits and the decisions that you're making that don't support the person that you want to become. 
and starts making the small steps necessary to change them. As Austin said, plan to make things easier for tomorrow's brain. There were some great things in today's episode. I'd encourage you to go back and take some notes on it if you didn't already. And I would also highly encourage you to go crap, grab a copy of Brainwash at brainwashbook.com. Start taking these things seriously and putting them into action so that you can get closer and closer to your best you. Best you.